The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. A very good afternoon to you on this wet 7th of November 2022. Can you believe just seven weeks until the end of the year? This year has absolutely flown by. And I think a lot of the reason why time seems to have flown like this is we've been catching up with those two somewhat wasted years of COVID. November throughout the world is recognized as the month during which fraud awareness is celebrated. When I say celebrated, I'm talking about it being put into the public interest front and center so people can have more of an awareness regarding fraud prevention and what's been done in the fight against fraud. With this in mind, we've made November our very own fraud month, and we start off today's show um, in a couple of minutes chatting to a fraud investiga- investigator, Angelique De Silva. Next week, on the 14th, we're going to be hosting a panel interview with the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. On the 21st of November, we're going to be chatting to Krista Beer from the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners, and we end off our fraud month on the 28th with Clive Gungadu, and we'll be chatting about digital fraud trends. So if you're keen on finding out more about what's happening in the world of fraud, how to prevent fraud, what to do if you become a unlucky victim of fraud, well, stay tuned this month. And remember, all of our shows are uploaded onto the HiFM website and can be downloaded as a podcast. I'd like to remind you that the views expressed on the show aren't necessarily those of myself or that of HiFM. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. My guest today, Angelique De Silva, is a fraud investigator. She's more than just a fraud investigator. She investigates financial crime and organized crime. She studied a Bachelor of Science in Biomedicine and then decided uh, somehow, and she's going to be telling us all about it, um, to have a bit of a change in course. She then did a course in anti-corruption and commercial crime investigation at UNISA, followed by a further degree in criminology, and she then completed her honors in criminology at UNISA. Angelique, a warm welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. Angelique. You're a young lady, and the first thing a lot of people must ask you is, what do you do? So, firstly, why is it that you've chosen this career path, and what kind of a reaction do you get from people that find out what it is that you do? Well, it ranges. A lot of them just sit back like, why? You're, you're, you had so much opportunity. You could have done anything. Are you sure? It's like pushing a stone up a hill. Are you sure you want to carry on in this way? And I do because I think if you want to see change, you have to be the change. And so that w- that's what motivated me from my BSc and then bridging into going into my BA honors. And So how does somebody that studies a, a BSc in biomedicine <laughs> land up being a fraud investigator? <laughs> so I was passionate about biology at school and I thought, okay, I definitely want to do a BSc because that gives me 
I can further investigate that. So I went into that, and then in my last module, I did criminalistics. And the minute I did criminalistics, I was like, no, I found my calling. This is what I want to do in the future. Let's see where we can go with this. And then I wasn't sure because you go from studying at Varsity daily, Monday to Friday. Your lecturers are not on you, but you have to meet certain requirements. And I wasn't sure if I could do open distance learning through UNISA, so I did the anti-corruption. And I knew that's kind of where I wanted to go. So I did that, and I got distinction. So I thought, oh, yeah, I can do a four-year degree in criminology. Let's let's see what we go with this. So I did it. My undergrad was great. And then I applied to different positions, and that's how I became a forensic investigator. Let's talk about the world of a forensic investigator. Compared to what we see on television, to the reality, was it a, was it a shock for you, or was it what you were expecting? I think it's an adjustment. I think television tends to glamorize any job that you go into. So I think it's just an adjustment. Parent, There's a lot of paperwork. And I don't think they show you just how much paperwork is involved. It's not just, oh, yes, okay, let's follow this thread and untangle. It's a lot. You go from you find one thing, then that spirals onto another thing. Then it's a different case. And then cases are intertwined. And it's a lot different. It's not just one case. They might be similar, they might all fall under the umbrella of corruption or fraud, but there's nuances that you pick up along the way. What I find interesting is you did it the other way around. You did your postgrad because you already had a degree, the BSc. You did your postgrad anti-corruption and commercial crime at UNISA, and then you did the criminology. A lot of people do the criminology first, realize there's not much that they can actually do with it, and then start following the post-grad route. So you are already prepared for this particular industry. Why do you think most people that just go in and start with a criminology degree don't actually understand the reality of what it's like to work in this environment on the ground? I think we don't do enough research as as young people going into degrees, we hear, okay, I know I want this. This is the umbrella I want to follow. But we don't understand this, like, going into specifics. So criminology is vast. And with criminology, you can do criminal justice. You can do law. You can do psychology. So you need to have an understanding of where you want to go, not just that, okay, criminology. I want to be a criminologist because there's the academics and then those who are working in the field. So it's a very big umbrella. I think you should have an idea of where you want to branch before you do your undergrad because that allows you to stay on course. Coming from a family where law enforcement was not the chosen career of your parents, your grandparents, your aunties, your uncles, were they surprised when you chose this route? I want to say yes, but at the same time, no. I was always that mischievous child. I would see something, not understand it, and then go and make further inquiries. I'd want to know, okay, but if this is what's happening, how did we get here? What led to this? So I think that that curiosity and that always wanting to learn and always wanting to see what happened, how did this result come from that, I think they always knew I would look into something with sort of mysteries, investigations, something to do with that line because I was always that child growing up. With the, the explosion in crime that we've experienced in South Africa, and let's, let's steer away from contact crime. Contact crime in GBV is very, very serious, but it's not the topic of today's conversation. Today we're talking about financial crime, which can be as devastating. People just don't realize it. I always talk about fraud kills. When you join the, an industry like this, are you surprised to see that there aren't more people doing what you do? 
I'm very surprised, especially given the personalities behind a lot of the people who commit fraud, because everyone wants to investigate, oh, the serial killers or the mass murderers. There's a lot that goes into someone who defrauds another human being. We don't see it because it's so impersonal. It's considered a a non-contact crime or white collar. But I don't think you understand the repercussions and ramifications, especially for a victim. A lot of them lose everything, and it's in the blink of an eye. And that that is it's shocking it's shocking that there's not more people involved in this type of industry looking into the different types of people who commit or perpetrate fraud because they're ever evolving it's an ever-changing field it's fascinating somebody like yourself that comes from an environment where you're very family orientated and you would understand how debilitating fraud could be if it impacted on your family business How are you able to investigate a crime without becoming emotionally involved because you've seen what it's done to other families and it would be human nature to say, well, this could have happened to my family? It's it's definitely a balancing act, um, especially if you are family orientated because you can't help but personalize it. So when you're dealing with a complainant or a victim of fraud, you have to understand that while you can sympathize with someone, you can't empathize. You can't take exactly what they're feeling because they can be very aggressive. Some can be very um, heartbroken, despondent, depressed. You can't feel everything and still give 100% of yourself as an investigator. So there has to be some type of line between wanting to assist but also not taking on their baggage, their hurts, so that it impacts or changes how you perceive the information that you're receiving. Sadly, some victims of fraud, and I do use the word victim, um, I I don't like to use the word survivor when it comes to a, a, a crime that involves money, whether it's fraud, whether it's a financial crime, whether it's corruption, because people become victims as a result of this. Survivors are people that have overcome, and a lot of people that have been defrauded remain victims. It becomes life-defining for them, and it consumes them because they may have lost their savings. Their family may now look down on them and even regard them as perhaps being silly or greedy, which is very wrong. You can't re-victimize somebody. What is your advice to a victim of fraud who, who... becomes consumed by this. So it's very easy to see how a victim would become consumed, especially if they've given over their retirement fund or their pension funds or any type of money that they had specifically put aside to move forward with their lives. But I think they need to understand that there's a way to, to pursue this criminally or civil, but you need to have some type of distance. You have to have a fallback plan because nothing is foolproof. So yes, I say open the cases, investigate and move forward with it, but don't allow it to consume your everyday because it's like taking poison and waiting for your fraudster to kick the bucket. It's not going to happen. They're just going to carry on re-victimizing more people and you're the one who's actually suffering. We're chatting to Angelique De Silva, a fraud investigator, about the damage that fraudsters do. And when we come back, I want to talk more about how a fraud victim can become a fraud survivor. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. 
Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Before we went to break, we were chatting to Angelique De Silva about fraud victims and how that simple act of betrayal, of theft, of larceny, of embezzlement can change that person's life forever and how a lot of people that have been victims of fraud remain victims. How do we turn them into fraud survivors? I think if we empower fraud victims to assist other or raise awareness around different types of scams, different types of phishing emails that they themselves experienced, I think that will assist them in overcoming because they'll feel like, okay, yes, I fell victim to this, but I've actually, I've got power. I can help the next person. I can raise awareness. I can educate someone else who is like I was prior to being defrauded. So South Africa talks to restorative justice. This became very big post-1994. And you now see the state wanting restitution, although it's always been allowed for in, in criminal law. You're seeing a push for restitution, not just in terms of victims of financial crime, but in other aspects. And this all forms part of the restorative justice. I mentioned that our law allows for this, but let's be realistic Why does it take so much time and what do you think needs to be done to to obtain this restorative justice, this financial restitution? So I think it takes a lot of time, especially now post-COVID. A lot of um, cases that were enrolled had to be postponed and there's been a whole knock-on effect. So unfortunately, they're busy playing catch-up with that as well. So there is an understanding in that, but we need to get ahead. We need to try and understand, okay, a fraudster isn't going to put things in his name because now he's aware of this restorative justice. He's going to open up trust. So we need to have more transparency on trust. And he's going to put it in his family member's name who may not actually be associated to the fraud but have prospered. So we have to find ways to link all of this so that we can have restorative justice. So you've, you've picked some very interesting points to, to speak about there. You've spoken about the fact that fraudsters have become wise to the fact that they may have to make restitution. So they're hiding their assets. Is the state equipped and capacitated to find this? And do we see it happening? I think on paper they are, but I think in practice it's harder. They are currently overwhelmed, and they have a lot of members that are busy with other cases or have been seconded. So there's a lot of exhaustion on the members who have now taken on a lot of other dockets that they didn't have before. So I think in a perfect world, yes, they'd be able to go after the trust. They'd be able to go after family members that had money there. But unfortunately, at the moment, they're just inundated. You use the word exhausted. Do you think our investigating officers are exhausted? I do think so. I think when you go and meet with members, when you go and speak to them, you 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 can humanize each other. You understand. You can see the dockets on their tables. You can see the exhaustion. They want to help, but at the same time, they've just inherited 30 or 40 other files that belonged to previous investigators who got promoted or who got moved. And I think it's hard. I think they get to a point where they, too, become a bit despondent. What do we do to change the sense of despondency? I think with the private sector as well as with the states, I think there needs to be that 
working together need that relationship needs to come it needs to be more critical and crucial at the moment because like with us we are forensic investigators we go to investigating officers on our cases and we say look i understand you have so such a backlog how can i assist in what capacity can i assist can i assist in any way so you form a bridge that's correct we do form a bridge and we also just I know it's horrible, but victims are always on top of the investigating officers with good reason because this becomes your world. This is so central to everything that you've experienced that then you want to put all of that on an investigator. And I don't think that's fair, especially given the docket caseload that they're currently working with. So we become the bridge between the victim who sometimes wants to take out a bit of frustration and the investigator. We have, you mentioned early on paper, incredible legislation in South Africa and most people don't understand this, and then they become a victim of a, of a crime. They start investigating further, finding out about all these things. But it's something that should have been communicated. When we talk about the role of private investigators, we often say it's to assist in navigating a very complex criminal justice system. What should government be doing to simplify this process or at least to educate the public at large as to how the criminal justice system works in South Africa? Oh, that's a bit of a loaded question. But I would say that, again, it's all about educating everyone. So you can't just go into private schools and decide, okay, well, let's run a, a fraud awareness week. And then maybe they'll take it back into their communities or into their households. We have to go to like the roots. So we have to go to rural areas. We have to, a lot of police stations you walk in and you want to report a fraud and they tell you it's civil even though it's very much criminal in nature so we need to raise awareness in all facets of society not just in certain aspects so this month we we have the the international fraud awareness day we have fraud awareness week and it's much the same as all these other weeks and other days that are celebrated a lot is going to be focused on the corporate environment educating those people that work within this environment about what legislation allows for, etc. It still doesn't trickle down to the masses. Do you think there should be a campaign of sorts by government considering that fraud and corruption has not just consumed individual victims, but it has resulted in a massive situation where service delivery has not occurred because of fraud and corruption at state capture level? I do agree with that. I fully agree with it because I think the more awareness and not just in a month or a week or a year or a day, the more awareness we have in our different communities, the more word of mouth gets around, the harder it will be to, to keep perpetrating the same types of fraud because it is a poison in our society. And we've seen now with state capture just how much of a knock-on effect it's had on every area of service delivery. We've reached the halfway mark. When we come back, I'm going to find out from Angelique what makes her tick, what has happened in her um, employment as a private investigator that's given her hope, and whether she herself may be despondent at times based on the fact that she's also reliant on third parties. This is uh, Imagine Dragons with a song I think very applicable to the weather we're experiencing in Joburg the last couple of days. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing.
You're listening to Confidential Brief, which is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Today we're chatting to Angelique De Silva, who is a financial crimes investigator. Something that sounds very exciting, but as we've heard from her earlier in the show, there is a lot of paperwork involved. Angelique, before we went to break, I mentioned that, you know, what keeps you going? What what are the highlights? Because we spoke about investigating officers being exhausted, those that work for the state, also being despondent. Doesn't that have a knock-on effect with you as a private investigator? I think it does to a certain extent, and it becomes a balancing act as well. And you have to have something else that fills in. So whatever you're taking out, whatever your day looks like, at the end of the day, you never put this job down. It follows you into your personal life, but you have to have something that just brings you joy. Whether it's music, whether it's reading, whatever your passion is, or your passion is rather, you just need to follow that and allow that to just balance out, put some goodness in whatever the day took out. God, I wish I could take that advice. (laughs) We spoke about a very complex criminal justice system when it comes to trying to navigate it. You spoke about going to a police station as a member of the public, not understanding the complex criminal justice system, trying to open a case of fraud and being told, no, it's civil. You'll end up coming to a firm like the firm you work for and other private investigation companies. There's a cost involved, and this to me, it doesn't, it doesn't mean there's justice. You know, the, the state gets paid taxes, the state is there to do the work. What should the state be doing to make the process simpler for the individual when opening a case? I think, again, it comes down to educating the public, because the more an individual is knowledgeable about a certain aspect, whether it's fraud, whether it's any type of reporting of a crime, the better equipped they'll be when they come to a police station. So, for example, with our industry, we're used to sort of how to explain whether it's a fraud that's criminal or whether it's a fraud that's civil. So, obviously, as soon as we meet resistance, we we highlight all the facts. And I feel like if more individuals were educated by the state on how to open criminal cases at station level or what terminology they need to use to show that it is a criminal case and not a civil case, I think that would help individuals greatly when they're registering their cases. So there's a lot of misnomers out there, the one being that the investigator, that the person that's taking down the first information that the investigating officer expects the police officer to take that statement down by hand and for them to show the elements of the crime. It's not that simple, is it? No, not at all. Um, we have our type statements that we come to the police station with. But when you go and register a case, that first, like you said, the first information officer, he'll sit with you, he'll take down your statement. But it's not just easy. It's how to explain to him that a fraud has been committed. Because if he thinks that it's civil, there's no way he's going to sit with you and take a statement in the first place. So it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you are confident, you understand the elements of the crime, you're there to show the individual. The individual may believe that you're showing him up, but it's also important that you opening this because if it had to be a complainant, because they they directly involved, 
they're so passionate about, they're consumed, they could become frustrated very easily at the process. And that could cause the case not to go much further. That's correct. When you come to this, especially police stations, you check your pride and your ego at the door because you are not smarter than the member who's in front of you who's trying to assist you in registering the case. You have different skills. You have different strengths. And I think uh, people lose sight of the fact that, yes, I'm a private investigator, but I'm also human. So I can humanize with the person who's in the charge office. So once you build that relationship and you're not so emotive like a fraud victim, it assists you in registering your case. But you have to just check your ego and your pride at the door. Yes, you're smart, but there's always going to be someone smarter than you. That's very interesting, and I think it, it goes a long way in understanding the dynamics because the person that you're interacting with at the police station isn't just a police officer, and they may be learning something new as well. So they may show that you being there, helping to educate them is encouraging, but you also can't be patronizing. So what are the strengths and the weaknesses of a private investigator? I think our strengths are that, like you've just said, we are a knowledge base that a police officer may not actually have, but then he may have. He may have done the exact same degree that I've done. He might not be in the charge office. He might be the detective that's investigating the case that I've opened. But his history, his background, the community he comes from is different to the community I come from. So I can always learn from him and he can always learn from me. So once you come at each other as um, human beings and willingness to learn and to be educated and to grow your knowledge base I think that relationship will go a lot further than if you walk there like I'm sorry I know what my case is you don't and I think the public's perception needs to change a lot because we only hear the bad things about the police good news doesn't sell in this country Yet there are so many policemen trying to make a difference. That's very true. We can't just say that all police officers are corrupt or all police officers don't want anything to do with cases. I've had great experiences with police officers. But, of course, if I went into every room with every investigator already closed off and already with a mindset that, no, this is corrupt, he's corrupt, he's not going to take my case or he's not doing this on my case, instead of standing back and going, actually, Look how many dockets he has. Look at um, the under-resourcedness. That he doesn't have a laptop. He doesn't have an email that's direct to him. How can I assist in that? I think it changes the dynamic. He sees, okay, wait, she's actually understanding. I like what you said there because what you're basically saying is your perception of that individual you're going to project. And if you project it incorrectly because you come in with a preconceived notion, it's going to impact negatively on your case. That's correct. If you come in closed off, if you come in guarded, even if there has been an incident where the investigator has misinformed you on a topic or misspoke, you have to come in thinking, okay, well, he's got 20 other cases. Maybe he accidentally mistook mine for another matter. Let me rather come in and resolve it amicably and see where we can move forward. We're chatting to private investigator Angelique De Silva, who specializes in financial crime. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You're listening to Confidential Brief. It's November. It's Fraud Awareness Month. It's Fraud Awareness Week and it's Fraud Awareness Day. All 
within this month. It's the month where we talk about nothing but fraud and what you can do to prevent it and what you should do should you sadly become a victim of it. Today our guest is Angelique De Silva. She is a financial crime investigator in private practice and she's been guiding us through the, the processes, protocols and basically the attitude of a private investigator to help get things done. Let's talk about the studying compared to the real world. You studied a lot. You studied the right topics. The subjects that you studied were criminology-based. They were commercial crime-based. They were financial crime-based. How did that relate to the real world when when it came to applying what you had learned? I think book knowledge is very different to street knowledge. And uh, I think in theory, it's very easy to look and consume information and then go in and write an exam. But it's the application of law. It's going into a meeting with an investigator. It's it's very different. It transitions different from a book smart to street smart. So I think if you have knowledge, that's always going to be um, a pro. That's always going to be in your favor. But I think you also need to have street knowledge. You need to be street smart. You need to have something that drives you. You need to be inquisitive. You need to have compassion. But you also need to have a heart of stone because there are certain aspects that they take a lot and if you consume it, if you take it into yourself, it will just not assist you in your job. For me, coming from, from the same field as you, I know that it can be emotionally taxing. You can have the frustration that's felt by the, the victim of the crime, and then you yourself can be frustrated if you're trying to explain the elements of the crime to the state so that the state can have the matter escalated. You said to me, you have to have this balance in life. And I understand it. But what is the most important skill set in being able to handle both a frustrated complainant, a targeted suspect who knows you're coming for them, and an investigating officer who, as you said earlier, is exhausted because of the amount of work they have? I don't know if there's just one specific skill set that I'd highlight, but I definitely say work to your strengths. So every investigator has their own history, their own upbringing, their own community that they were brought up in. Those are strengths. Whether you come from a different background to the investigator, to the suspect, or to the victim, there are always things that you can relate. So always lay a foundation on relation, like anything that you can find that's relatable between the two of you, and then build from that. Because once you've established that, it's easier to to gain that repertoire between any of the three individuals that you've listed. But also, you can watch how they respond, how they react, because every situation will be different. Some <laughs> complainants are great. Some will just say, okay, here's my mandate, go ahead, do this. You can give me feedback whenever. But others want constant, they want to be reassured that you're working on their case. They want to be heard. So it's a balancing act. Let's talk about you personally in terms of entering into this industry, being thrown into the deep end just (laughs) pre-COVID. What are your highs? And then we're going to chat about your lows. I think my highs are definitely the learning curve that I faced. Like you said, it was a baptism by fire. I think I was... Three months 
prior to COVID, I'd started working and then it was just everything offline. It was just me. So I think it was definitely a baptism by fire, which grew me as a person individually. It helped me see that, okay, actually rely on your strengths because wherever you second guess yourself, you're actually correct. So it helped me to gain confidence because I had me, myself and I to rely on. But the learning that you do on this job, always have a pen and always have a notebook near you because it is constantly learning. And that's a high because you can always take that into the next thing that you're doing or into a court case or into a meeting. You always learn and it's applicable. And the lows? Oof. I think the lows are definitely where you feel like you've given all in a case and then something like someone negotiating how they're arrested or someone saying... Uh, I don't know, just getting awful. It, that That is emotionally draining. I think seeing that in the flesh is one thing compared to hearing stories, but seeing that takes a knock-on effect. I don't know if this is going to be ending off on a positive or a negative <laughs> note, but when you look at the cases that you are currently investigating and the liaison capacity that you have with the investigating officers and the prosecutors, does it give you hope that things are happening or conversely does it make you despondent that perhaps things aren't working the way they should? I think it gives me more hope um, because I see that they are working on cases. They are trying to move. But then I also understand the restraints. So there is hope, but it's a cautious optimism instead of just let's. Yes, this is definitely going forward. We're moving forward on a positive note. I think there's a balance. So I think if the state could just give them more resources, could just go into communities and actually just encourage people to join units, to actually become detectives or to go into the NPA, because a lot of us are like, oh, this system, it's just they're corrupt, they're corrupt. They're going to continue to be corrupt unless we take action. It's easy to say. Why don't we step up to the plate and say, okay, well, I think that there are some members that are not corrupt. Why don't I change my perception let me go into the industry let me be that light let me find other like-minded individuals and then we'll see a positive change final question of the day what advice would you give an aspirant private investigator it's not all glamour and glitz i think find yourself a mentor or find someone who's in the industry and have a heart-to-heart with them let them be honest with you because i think a lot of us go into the industry with just, you know, rose-colored glasses, and the reality sometimes just crashes that to the ground. But I think if you've had an honest heart-to-heart with someone who's in the industry, you're better prepared, and you won't face a burnout within your first six months because it's not what you expected. Angelique De Silva is a financial crime investigator operating within the sphere of investigating complex financial crimes, um, fraud, and corruption. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. November, as I've mentioned throughout the show, is the month where fraud awareness is at its peak. It's where all the international as well as local organizations talk about fraud, and it's where we at High FM take it very seriously, especially on Confidential Brief, and bring the experts to you so you can hear directly from them. First in the series, of course, was Angelique De Silva today, who chatted about the role of a private investigator. Next week, we'll have a panel interview with the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, together with their CEO, Yaku Diaga. 
The following week, on the 21st, we'll be chatting to Krista Beer, who heads up the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners. And we'll be closing off Fraud Month on the 28th with Clive Gungadu, who will be chatting to us about digital trends within the fraud space. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, there are repeats of the show during the week. And if you enjoyed the show and if you want somebody to have a listen, perhaps, well, just click on www.highfm.com. Go to Podcasts, Monday, Confidential Brief. Click on it, and it will have a list of all our previous shows. Thank you so much for joining us. Rubber Roofs was brought, Rubber Roofs brought you um, Confidential Brief. If you're tired of getting contractors into fix your leaky roof, only to find out that your roof still leaks, well, it's time to leak to sort that leak out for good. Rubber roofs manufacture and apply the rubber paint to your roof. Your roof will look great and won't leak anymore. Rubber roofs offer a 10-year warranty. Rubber roof is the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Find out more at www.rubberroofs.co.za.